Hey, join me in the, in the book of Luke chapter 14 if you have your Bibles this morning. That's where we're going to be. We're picking up our series on bringing Jesus into focus in the year 2020. Wow. We picked this before we knew anything about pandemic and all the other things that are happening in our world in 2020. And we just thought as we gathered last fall as a leadership team that we need to spend some time looking at the life of Jesus. And it's so incredible that the timing and how God works knowing in advance where we'd be on July 12th, 2020, and some of the situations that we'd be facing. And His Word is relevant. His Word is relevant for our situation today. And as I was studying the passage this week, I realized how God is speaking directly to us in our moment. And today, I believe that He's going to speak to each of us. You know, there's a, a symbol that I think we all recognize, and it, I believe we have it up on the screen. Uh, not that. That. Does anybody recognize that? Yeah, that's, that is the result of something called an EKG, an electrocardiograph. And it is measures with electrodes what is happening with the old ticker right inside of here in each of us. Maybe you guys have seen on a movie or maybe you've had one done personally where you've seen a readout of what that thing looks like. What would be bad is if there's a flat line. That would be bad because that means there's nothing happening in here. And when nothing's happening in here, you're dead. So that is bad, right? But that is a symbol of life, amen? That is a symbol of life. And this morning, I wanted to use that symbol as a representative of what I think is happening in Luke chapter 14 as Jesus speaks, as he encounters different people and their questions. He wants to talk about what does life look like in my kingdom? Now, that little symbol has a positive and a negative within it. Do you realize that when your heart beats, there's electrode, there's electricity that is happening between the, the different chambers of the heart? And within one beat, there's a positive and then a release and then a negative. And it's like a battery is happening inside of here. God made it so that it would continue to function, continue to go positive, negative, positive, negative, positive, negative as it pumps the blood through our bodies and allows us to have life. And so, so it is with God's kingdom. With every situation that Jesus explains this morning, there's a positive choice within the kingdom, and then there's a negative choice that we can make within his kingdom. And of course, Jesus is encouraging us. He's encouraging the crowds of that day. He's encouraging everyone he speaks to to, to choose the positive choice and not the negative. He wants us to enjoy the life that he, that he came to bring in his kingdom. So we come to Luke chapter 14 and we, we see that Jesus is being invited to a Pharisee's house, a well-known Pharisee, someone with great power, great prestige in that society. You might say that it, was, it would be like being invited to the White House, being invited to the governor's mansion if he actually lived there, but being invited to the place where prominent people gather, the 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 who's who of that society. The important people were the ones that would give an invitation to come to their house and be welcomed as a guest. And it was very common in that day for 
the time right after gathering at the synagogue on the Sabbath. They gathered on the Sabbath day on Saturday, and they gathered in the synagogue, and they opened the word, the scriptures that they had, and they would read, and they would study, and they would proclaim, and then afterwards they would have a nice feast. And they would have a celebration, much like we do after church. We might go somewhere, we might, you know, um, go somewhere where we're going to have some good food and fellowship. At least we used to be able to do that. Um, today we're a little more limited, but that, that was something that is common in that day as it is in ours. And so Jesus has been invited by a prominent member of the Pharisees, the, the council that governed and kind of led the people of that day spiritually. Now, many times he was invited because people were curious about, man, he seems to really have some words from God. And we want to be instructed. We want to learn from this man who clearly has come from God. But other times, he was invited so that they might trap him, that they might find reason to accuse him. And it is in that latter instance that we find the setting of what's taking place in Luke chapter 14. Join me in verse 1 as we, as we begin. It says this, One Sabbath when he went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. Right there in verse 1, we get the motivation of their hearts. It wasn't to invite him to be instructed. It wasn't invite him because we respect who this man is, that, he, that he's come from God. We, he has powerful words of God to hear and to receive and to apply to our lives. No, that wasn't the reason they invited him. We get it in verse 1. It says they invited him so they could watch him closely. Why? They were looking for a slip-up. They were looking for a reason to confirm what was already in their hearts about this man. That he's a fraud. That he's here to threaten our authority. We're going to find reason to accuse him. Verse 2, there in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. They had set a trap. You see, in that day, the lame, the blind, those who were afflicted, they weren't invited to such a party. They were the outcasts of society. They were the ones that you just shunned. You kind of, as you saw them along the path, you went on the other side and, and didn't even want to give them eye contact. No, the Pharisees didn't invite this man because they had compassion, because they loved this man, because they were hoping that Jesus could heal him and take care of him. No, they had put him in front of that house because they were looking for reason to accuse. Looking for an opportunity to trap Jesus. Now this swollen with fluid, what is this? It was known as dropsy or edema. It's an organ issue. It's a painful condition in which fluid fills your body because your organs can't process it correctly. And so you're just bloated and you're ailing and you're, and you're afflicted and you're in pain. And if a Pharisee was to come to you and say, hey, come with us. We think we got a solution for your problem. You would do anything. You would wonder, these guys never seemed to care about me before. What's going on? But you would go anyway because there was hope. There was a possibility that maybe you could be healed. And so they had planted him right in the front of the front door of the house. Now what was the trap? The trap was simply this. If Jesus was to walk by that man and do nothing, then they could accuse him of having no compassion 
of being a selfish man, of being one who can look at some problem and not have any compassion and care for that problem. And they would love to be able to accuse him of that. But they kind of doubted that because every time he was around people that were ailing, he seemed to have compassion. He seemed to care. He seemed to find ways to reach out and to heal them. They knew that. So likely they were looking to accuse him of the latter, and that was this. If he healed this man on the Sabbath, then they could accuse him of breaking God's laws. How dare this man go against the very law of God? The law of God was given on the mountain to Moses. This was the high point of Jewish history. Exodus chapter 20, the fourth commandment said you should honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, keep it set apart. You are to do no work on that day. How dare a man violate that, the Pharisees thought. And so they planted the trap. Verse 3, in response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees. Jesus is so clever. He knows the hearts of men. You can't trap Jesus. He knew what was in these men's hearts. And he knew why he was confronted with this man who was suffering. He asked the question to the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? This was in front of the whole crowd that had gathered at this prestigious man's house. And Jesus had turned the trap back on them. Because he knew that if the Pharisees were to answer that no, it's not okay to heal, it's not okay to be loving and caring on the Sabbath, the people would accuse them of having no compassion. The people who would gather would go, look at these men, they claim to be for God, but they don't even care about a person that's clearly afflicted, that's clearly hurting. What compassionless leaders we have. And if they were to say, yeah, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, then their own contemporaries, their own guys would accuse them of not being honoring to the law. So Jesus, like he does so many times, and Pastor Kurt has mentioned this, he answers a question with a question. And he throws it, he spins it back around on them. And now they're trapped. Now keep in mind that Jesus had already violated the Sabbath, their Sabbath, the way they interpreted the Sabbath, traditions on at least seven different occasions when we come to this moment in Scripture. On the Sabbath day, Jesus had cast out a demon, Luke chapter 4. He had healed a fever in that very same chapter, Luke chapter 4. He had allowed his disciples to go through a, a field of grain and pick the grain and eat it. He had healed a lame man, John chapter 5. He had healed a man with a paralyzed hand, Luke chapter 6. He had delivered a crippled woman who was afflicted with a demon. Luke chapter 13. And he had healed a man who was born blind. John chapter 9. Jesus had already done healings on the Sabbath. Jesus had already violated the traditions of the Pharisees on this day. So why this trap? What's going on here? Well, here's the problem. He had never been caught right in the moment by the leaders of the synagogue. By the leaders of that day spiritually. It was always like somebody witnessed it. Jesus just healed that dude. And they would run and they would tell the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were like, Burr! 
there. He did what? We got to find this guy. And they, they, the, the, the reputation that Jesus was a lawbreaker of the Sabbath started to grow and grow. And so now they said, let's catch him right in the act. Let's find a way to get him so that there's no denying that he's breaking the laws of the Sabbath. And then we can nail him. But Jesus had turned it back on them. The dilemma was now theirs. It wasn't the Lord's. And they needed a way to escape. So what would be their response? We see it in verse 4. But, the, but they, the Pharisees, kept silent. They had no answer. They had no way to refute what Jesus is throwing at them. They knew that if they said one thing, they would be accused of the people of being compassionless. And they knew that if they said, yeah, go ahead and heal this guy, that they would be known as a lawbreaker amongst their peers. And so they were freaked out to say anything. And so they just remained silent. So Jesus took action. In the midst of that confusion and silence, Jesus acts. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. I love that he sent him away. Because he doesn't want him around the influence of those men. He knew that those guys weren't good for them, for this man. He's like, go find someone else that you can, you know, tell. Because they're not going to care. They're not going to respect what happened here. He heals the man and sends him away. Now this next section, you got to understand what these Pharisees knew. They knew the law. They knew what was written specifically in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Many of them had memorized large portions, if not all, of the law. They were experts, the Bible tells us, in the law. And Jesus knew that. And so he's about to mess with them. But in order to understand how he's messing with them, we need to understand a couple of things they, they knew from the law. Exodus chapter 21, verse 33. If anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, Verse 34, the one who opened the pit must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal in exchange. Wow, that's an odd verse. Jesus, God is concerned about when you dig a hole that you cover it. How many are in construction? How many are digging holes? You better cover it. Jesus is concerned. No, why was this given? This was given because this obviously happened in their culture. Animals were roaming around, and if you dug a hole in your, and somebody else's animal fell in the pit, it could die, and they would lose part of what was valuable to them. And it was your fault because you didn't cover the pit. And so God had a, a, a solution for that, and it was this. If you failed to do it, then you get the dead animal, right? That's what you get. And, and the Bible says that um, the, the, the one who... Uh, Open the pit, the one who dug the pit must pay the owner for the loss. So it was kind of a way to make sure that if somebody else caused your animal to die by falling into a pit, that there was a financial incentive for you to make sure you remembered to cover it in the first place. So they knew this verse. And you're like, why does it matter? Well, we're going to find out in just a second. Second verse, Deuteronomy 22.4. If you see your fellow Israelite's donkey or ox fallen on the road, do not ignore it. Help the owner get it to its feet. So there's another verse dealing with animals that have fallen, that have 
that are in danger. And God wanted to make sure that there was compassion towards that situation and that you helped your neighbor. If you ever encountered that situation, you'd help your neighbor. So not only was there financial incentive to make sure you try to, you know, rescue an animal that had fallen in a pit because you don't want it to die because if it dies, it's your fault and now it's your financial loss. But there's a compassion element that's in play from the law about an animal that has fallen. You need to take compassion on that animal and its owner and make sure you assist helping to rescue it. Now these men knew these verses and they promoted this. They actually practiced this. They were quite familiar with these verses. And so Jesus knows that and he asked them a question. Verse 5, And to them he said, Which of you whose son or even an ox, a donkey, falls into a well, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. So he knew their hearts. He knew that they cared about animals and that they would rescue an animal in need even on the Sabbath day. They considered that okay. As a matter of fact, if their son fell into a well, they would certainly do everything they could to rescue their son. They cared about their children, just like you and I care about our children. And we wouldn't let some silly rule hold us back from rescuing the life of an individual. But Jesus says, I know you'll do that for your son, but you'll even do that for an ox or a donkey. You'll do that for an animal if it falls into a pit. You'll break the Sabbath all day long to rescue that animal. Why? Because you're motivated. You don't want to be financially responsible. You love your money. You also don't want to be blamed of being someone that isn't compassionate. You're compassionate towards animals. But here I am with a man who is created in my image and likeness. Who is, who is, I've been confronted with this man who is suffering. And you're going to accuse me of healing this man and loving him in this moment because of your traditions of the Sabbath? The Lord knew too much about this legalistic crowd to let them escape. He knew that on the Sabbath day they would deliver their farm animals from danger. So why not permit him to deliver a man who was made in the likeness of God. Seemingly, they were suggesting that animals were more important than people. How far had these religious leaders' hearts strayed from God's heart? Verse 6, to this, to what? To Jesus' question, his second question, to this, they, the religious leaders, could find no answer. They could find no answer. Jesus had done like checkmate, right? And they were dumbfounded. They didn't know what to say. They had no reply. They had no answer. Because Jesus understood that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Do you realize that everything that God gave us in the law is designed for our health and our benefit, not for our harm and our restriction? God loves us and He gives us freedom. He doesn't want it to be used and twisted in a way to not love others and have compassion towards people. And that's what the Pharisees were doing in that day. And Jesus confronts them, and they have no answer. The first heartbeat of God's kingdom is love, not law. You realize that Jesus Christ didn't violate a single law of God when He was on earth. The Bible says that he was without sin. 
He didn't violate the Sabbath as God had intended it to be lived. He didn't violate any law. Jesus didn't come to change or abolish the law, the Bible tells us. No, the law was good. The law is designed to show us the holiness of God, the perfect standard of a holy God, and that we can't measure up. That's what the law was useful for. All you have to do is take a quick look in the mirror and realize like we've all broken God's law. We've all fallen short. Anybody told a lie? Anybody ever cheated, stolen, coveted? Anybody ever used God's name in vain? Anybody ever cursed? Anybody ever uh, looked at someone else's possessions and wanted it for yourself? We all break God's law in our hearts or even in our actions from time to time. We're all sinners. We all fall short. Jesus didn't come to change it. He didn't come to abolish it. He certainly didn't come to mock God's law. He was the author of the Sabbath. No, Jesus came to fulfill God's law. How did he fulfill God's law? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. How did he fulfill it? He fulfilled it because he is love. Matthew 5, 17. He fulfilled it because he is love. And when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you can't break a law of God. You can't do it. If the motive of your heart is to love God and to love others, you have no problem with law. You realize that? And God wants us to focus on love, not on law. Because law can start getting really convoluted, can it not? How many have read the governor's recommendations? That's convoluted. That's law, right? But we can make it very simple because Jesus has given us what we need for life and godliness. And what is it? It's the, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Now, I want you to understand something, church. That's commandment number one. There is no greater commandment. If we follow commandment number one with all of our hearts, we're not going to be in danger of breaking the law. Because we can't break God's law if we're following and praising God. Can't do it. Secondly, it says there's a second that's like it. But it's second place. It's not first place. It's second place. And that's to love our neighbors ourselves. It says that all the laws and commandments hang on these two things. To love God and love our neighbors ourselves. Church, if we're doing that, we're not going to be breaking any kind of law. Let's focus there. Let's allow God to show us how to live and how to walk in these days. Now, that doesn't give us a license to go around and say, ha ha, I can break any law I want. No, because I'll accuse you of not loving God and not loving others in that moment. You have to be very careful of the license that you give yourself to break a law if you can't truly say in your heart that you're doing those first two things very important. And Jesus was certainly love. Amen? Amen? Amen. Verse 7, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. By this point, they had gone into the house. It was time to get seated for the meal. You know, I'm a dad and we have a living room and nowadays it's about who gets the best view for the television. There's certain couch positions, certain chairs that are like ideal. And I have five kids and me and my wife, and we all compete when it's time for the movie. 
right? We all compete. We look at each other. I see the guy across the room, and he sees the spot that I want, and he knows he wants that spot, and we fight for that spot. And it leads to all kinds of conflict. There's kicking, screaming, and there's joy in the Potras household. When we sit down to watch our favorite movie together as a family. But in Jesus' day, it was no different. In that day, the closer you were to the host, the more important you were considered to be. And so if you got an invitation to come to a meal, that was exciting. That meant you were somebody. But the closer you could get to the host, the closer you could sit next to the man who was hosting, wow, you were somebody. You know, to sit right next to the president, wow, that's better than being on the other end of the table. Right? And so they would compete. They would, they would like wrestle. They would find a way to like stare each other down and, and make sure that they were seated next to the best place, the place of honor for themselves. Verse 7. Verse 8. When, so Jesus notices this and he's about to tell them a story. Verse 8. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. Can you imagine like the best man, usually there's like weddings in here and there's like this table that's set up here. And that's where like the bride, the groom, the best man, the maid of honor, all those people that are part of the wedding party, they're seated. Can you imagine if Joe Schmo just went up here and sat next to the, the groom or the bride? It was like, what's up? I mean, the bride and the groom would be like, get out of here, Joe Schmo. You're not, you're not in our wedding party. Go sit back in the back table. As a matter of fact, just leave now. You're offensive. Verse 9, the one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. That's that's humiliating, is it not? Public humiliating when somebody goes, "Uh, sorry, dude, this isn't your seat. Yours is like way back there, right? It's one thing if I get a concert ticket and I know I have a nosebleed because that's my budget, right? And I go sit down in the pit. Right? And I'm like, yeah, ready for the concert. And then some VIP gets ushered in and I get booted. I'm a king's ticket holder, right? And there's times where I'm like, ooh, I want a better seat. That, that one looks empty down there. I'm going to sneak down there, right? And I'm going to sit there. And I'm always nervous because these ushers are coming up and down the aisle, right? And I know that's not my rightful seat, but it's, nobody's sitting there, right? And then suddenly the guy comes in like the second quarter. I'm like, what are you doing? These things cost a lot of money. Why do you show up in the second quarter? And then I get booted and I'm all humiliated. Yeah, he's up there. Yeah, see you guys, right? I've done that. I've felt that shame before, right? And usually I'm with my son. He's like, Dad, I thought these were ours. Oh, no, son, ours are up there. (laughs) We've all been in that place, have we not? Well, some of you guys stay in your proper seat. I'm just, I'm bold and crazy that way. And sometimes I don't, don't do that. But I've been humiliated and it's not fun. Right? To be kind of pointed out like, yeah, that guy's not in the place he's supposed to be in. And Jesus is telling that story. He's like, don't sit in the most important place because you're going to get humiliated when you are booted. Verse 10, but when you are invited, go and recline in the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will then be honored in the presence of all the other guests for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, I gave some tickets to the Kings game to my parents. My parents are here today. 
and they got to go to my nosebleed seats, right? And somehow, I have no idea, I can't believe it's the game I gave them. They got chosen out of the whole crowd to go and sit courtside. I've been to the Kings game like so many times and they've never chosen me. But the one time I give up the seats to my parents, they somehow get chosen and honored. They announce them over the loudspeaker. They show them on the big screen. Like, look at these two fools. They get to move all the way up to the front row and enjoy the game. But seriously, that's, that's a place of honor when the, when the one who owns the seats, when the one who owns the place says, you know what, you're more important than you think you are to me. Move forward. So Jesus tells them this story. He wants them to understand the second part of God's heartbeat. You either have humility or humiliation in God's kingdom. You either come with a humble heart and say, God, I'm not even worthy, but thank you for choosing me. Thank you for sending your son to die in my place. I'm not worthy. I I should be like outside of this party, but you've invited me in. Thank you, Jesus. Not like, look at me, look at all the wonderful things I've done to impress God. I should get to go to heaven right now. And as a matter of fact, I should be in God's place. Yeah. Well, who said that at one time? Yeah, not, not someone good. That was Satan's heart. And Jesus wants us to know we need to have humility, but we're going to be humiliated in the end. 1 Peter 5, 5 and James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Both of those passages quote Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. So they knew this principle. It was already written in their Scriptures. They knew that God wanted a humble heart. Verse 12, He also said to one who invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back. And you would be repaid. In that day, it was all about like scratching each other's back. Very similar to the celebrities in Hollywood today. You know, has any celebrity in Hollywood invited you to a party yet? No, because you have nothing to offer them back, right? They're looking to invite the, you know, oh, that guy's got a million and a half dollars. Oh, that guy's got six billion dollars. I'll invite him because I hope that he'll invite me to the next party he throws. And it becomes this like, who can scratch each other's back the most? And that's how you get your reward. It's just, wow, look at, look at the crowd that I get to run with. Jesus said that shouldn't be the heart of those that follow Him. On the contrary, verse 13, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Do you realize you only get your reward once? You realize that? If people applaud for you now, there's your reward. Enjoy. But I'd rather have Jesus applaud for me one day because I think that what he can do to reward us is way better than what we can receive on earth. Amen? So we do things to honor and please Jesus, not man. We live, we live to love our God, not to exalt ourselves. That's the heartbeat of God's kingdom number three. Generosity is what he expects from his people, not greed. Our motive for sharing must be the praise of God and not the applause of men. 
the eternal reward in heaven and not the temporary recognition that we can receive on this earth. Instead of asking, what can I get out of it? We should be asking, how can I be a blessing to others? Amen? We come to the final section of this passage this morning. Jesus has been talking about the attitude of our heart. What it should be. It should be a heart of love. It should be a heart of generosity. It should be a heart of humility. And finally, he wants them to understand how important this last one is. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God is blessed. And what he's saying is, Jesus, I get it, man. You're talking about the feast that God's going to throw for all of his people. That's exciting. I'm looking for, I know I'm going to be there. That's going to be awesome. Now, where did he get this mindset? I want to go back to the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah talks about this. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 says this, The Lord of hosts will prepare a feast for all the peoples on this mountain a feast of aged wine, choice meat, finely aged wine. On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is what this man is talking about. He's like, Jesus, I hear you talking about a banquet, feast, that we should invite the right people. I get it, but I'm the right people, right? I'm looking forward to how awesome it's going to be in that day when we get to gather. And Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And so he starts telling them a final story here, verse 16. Then he told them a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. I want to stop there because I have to explain this real quick. In that day, there were two invitations to a big feast. Invitation number one went out in advance. It would go out to all the homes of all the men who were invited to come to this banquet. And it was usually thrown by somebody who was well off. Somebody who had a lot of resources. And they would invite all kinds of people within the community that they chose to invite because, again, they said, hey, I'm something and I'm, I'm considering you something. That's why I want you at my party. Right? And so the invitation went out. But they didn't know the date. They didn't know the time. They just knew in the near future there's going to be a party and that man's throwing it and I'm invited. And so now they would live their life with this anticipation of that great party. They didn't want to miss that party. That was the high point of social life in Israel, to be invited and to attend a great banquet. It only happened once in a while. It wasn't an everyday occurrence. And so they were living with the anticipation, can't wait till it's ready. Can't wait. No matter what's going on in my life, I'm going to drop it all and I'm going to go to that party. Verse 17 says, at the time the banquet was ready. Remember, the guy had to kill his animals. He had to butcher a lot of 
meat. Prepare it. Get everything ready. It was a great investment by this man. It was something that he put a lot of self-sacrifice into in order to accommodate and host this kind of feast. And it was all on his dime. So he sent his slave to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. So he would go out to the different villages. He would go out to the different homes and he would declare the message that, remember that party that we were going to host? It's ready. Come and enjoy. Well, of course, everybody's just going to come running. Verse 18, but without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out to see it. I ask that you excuse me. Now at this point, this sounds almost like comedy to the Jewish leaders who are listening. Because there is no way anybody would ever do this in their society. Jesus, you're funny. That's hilarious. Nobody would ever say, like, I got to go look at a piece of dirt rather than go to this awesome party that's being planned. You could go any other time to go look at your piece of dirt to inquire about your property, right? To go up to Markleyville. You can any other time, right? But not when there's a party. When there's a party. And so, so this just seems ludicrous to them. And they're just probably starting to laugh like, this is hilarious, Jesus, but what's your point? Another said, verse 19, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. This is like going to a test drive. You know, for, one, for some car you're interested in. You can't schedule your test drive on another day. This is a party. This is high society. You've been invited. The host wants you. He's recognized how important of a person you are. Of course you're not going to do this. This is ludicrous again. The audience that Jesus is telling this to is saying, oh, this is hilarious. What is he talking about? There's no way this would ever happen. But Jesus isn't laughing. Jesus is saying, this is happening. This is what I'm telling you. This is happening. Verse 20, and another said, I just got married, and therefore I'm unable to come. Well, guess what? Yeah, when you just got married, there was some things like you didn't have to go to war for a year in Israel, right? You got to stay home and enjoy your bride, enjoy that relationship that God had blessed you with. But you know what? Even in that situation, if your bride knew that, hey, you're invited to that amazing party, you're something, and I want you to go, husband, get out of here. Go, be somebody. You need to, you know, you've been invited. I give you permission. Even a woman wouldn't withhold a man in this society, nor was a woman prominent enough in Jewish society to restrict a man. That isn't the way it worked. Especially these Pharisees. You know, they, they got up every morning and they prayed this prayer. I thank you, O Lord God of Israel, that I am not a Gentile or a woman. That's what they prayed every day. This audience that Jesus is talking to. Did they have respect for women and that suddenly a woman's going to keep them from going to the most awesome party that's thrown in their area that they've been invited to? No. Again, this was ludicrous. But I want you to notice something. Every one of these excuses was either possessions or relationship. Possessions or relationships were keeping people from accepting the invitation to attend this banquet, this party. Verse 21, so the slave came back and reported these things to his master. 
Master, I've, I've, I've invited, I, I told everybody it's ready and nobody's coming. None of your guests are coming. Then in anger, ooh, that word in the Bible talks about to be enraged. To be enraged. It's a righteous indignation. Can you imagine the expense that this man went to? Can you imagine the care, the sacrifice? How offensive it is to be denied when you have gone to the utter expense to make sure that the party is ready. To be denied for these silly excuses. Possessions, really? That's going to hold you away from delighting in the invitation to attend the relational party that I've invited you to? Really, some other relationships more important than this? I think not. How offensive, how rude. The master of the house told his slave, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. He's talking to the Pharisees. Were any of the poor, blind, maimed, were any of them invited to their party that he's sitting at? No, not a one. As a matter of fact, they had used one at the entrance as a trap to try and accuse Jesus. And then he was dismissed. You're not welcome into the party. This is ridiculous. No Jewish man of any reputation is going to invite this audience. And yet this man is doing it because he's not going to accept the excuses that he's heard. He wants his place filled. He wants to make sure that there's going to be a feast and a banquet. Verse 22, Master, the slave said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. I've gone into the places where in the city where people are laying in the gutters. They're the shunned of society. And I've, I've said, hey, there's a banquet ready. And they're like, well, I'm not worthy. No, you can come. Come on, let's go. Let's go. You're invited. You get to sit at the table. You get to enjoy the feast that's been prepared. And they got up and they made their way. Verse 23, the master told the slave, after he said, hey, what you've ordered has been done and there's still room. Verse 23, then the master told the slave, go out into the highways and the lanes and make them, compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. He talks about going outside of the city to go into the places where the Gentiles were, to go into places where the Samaritans were, the detestables of their culture and invite them to a Jewish feast? This is ludicrous. This story makes no sense to them. And then he changes everything up in the last verse. Up until now, he's been talking in the third person. He's been talking about some master that created a feast, a banquet, invited some guests. And then he says this in verse 24, For I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will enjoy whose banquet? My banquet. Whoa. What are you saying, Jesus? We had a picture that you were telling a story about a banquet that's going to take place in heaven, the kingdom of God. Are you telling us that you are equated with God? What are you saying? This is shocking to them. This is outlandish to them. They can't wrap their heads around it. And now they're thinking, wait a second, you weren't just talking about some 
figures that existed, you're pointing the finger at us. That we're the ones making excuses. That we're the ones not, not respecting your kingdom and your banquet invitation. You're crazy. We're going to have to do something about you, Jesus. We can't accept this. This isn't right. And Jesus' heart is breaking. Because God the Father went at great expense to prepare a banquet. He had chosen Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He had set apart a people to himself. And that nation was Israel. Every one of these guys sitting here at this table were a part of that initial invitation. They were Jews. They were Israelites. They had been invited to the great banquet. And yet, because of the hardness of their heart, they had found things that they were focused on rather than that invitation. Oh, I got other stuff that's going on. You don't understand the things that I'm building my kingdom. I got possessions. I got stuff holding me back. I got relationships that are much more important than what you're saying. And Jesus on earth says, God the Father's heart is enraged with righteous indignation because you've offended His invitation. You've chosen something other than Him to make it a priority. Now that was directed at them. But how much more for us today? He's given us Jesus. He sent Him to the cross to pay the price and the penalty of our sin. He went to great expense to rescue you and me from the fate of our sins. The righteous fate of our sins is death. Separation from God forever. How often do we find ourselves saying, but God, I don't want to go to church today. I'd rather focus on my football game. I got other things that, I, that are making a priority over your kingdom. God, I know you've given me some wealth, but I don't want to give it back to you. I got other things to invest in. I got to take care of myself. We make excuses all the time, and it's an offense to God. God has invited us. He's extended the invitation. We're the people that are out on the highways and the byways. If you're a Gentile here today, if you're not a Jewish person, He has invited us. He's extended the grace to the ends of the earth because He wants heaven filled. He wants to throw a party and He wants guests. And He's invited you and me to be a part of that. The heartbeat of God's kingdom is either repentance or regret. You either come to your knees and say, God, I've been living this way for myself and I'm sorry for my sin and I turn to you and I turn to salvation and I turn to the Savior or you will live with regret. That's what Jesus is saying to this audience. Don't live with regret. As strong as he can deliver a message in this story, he's doing it to these men. But unfortunately, many of them decided to ignore this story and nail him to a cross. There were a few. Nicodemus. There were a few that decided, you know what? Jesus is who he says he is. And I'm going to give my life to him regardless of the cost. There were a few. My challenge to us this morning as we come to the Lord's table, and I'm going to ask, if my son Josh, he's going to come up and play some music for us as we turn our hearts to communion this morning. 
my challenge for us is, are we making excuses? Why are we not giving our whole selves to God? Is there something that's standing in the way of you saying, Jesus, you have my life. I surrender it all to you. I turn it over to you because you have invited me to the greatest party that could ever be thrown, and it's in heaven. And I want to prioritize my life around that reality and quit making excuses. In the book of Luke, chapter 22, verse 14, we read these words. When the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles were with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Do you realize in Revelation chapter 19 we get a picture of what Jesus is saying here in Luke 22? There's a moment that is described in Revelation 19 where Jesus, He is the great and high and lifted one. And He comes and He takes part in communion with the saints once again. We are looking forward to that day. That's going to usher in the great supper and feast of the Lamb that's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says everyone is blessed who has been invited to that and has accepted that invitation. You know, Jesus wants you there. And maybe you don't know if you've given your heart to Jesus. This morning can be the day of decision for you. Don't go away with excuses in your heart. Repent of your sins and turn to a Savior who loves you. Pray this with me this morning. Heavenly Father God, I have sinned against you. You have every right to be angry at my sin. But God, I repent. God, I turn away from my sin and I turn to you and your son Jesus as my Savior. Come in, I bow my knee to you. You are Lord. You call the shots. I surrender my heart to you today. Come and cleanse me of my sin. And give me new hope to be with you forever in heaven. God, I say this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, let me just say that you are going to be there at that banquet. Nothing can separate you from the love of of the Father if you opened your heart to His Son. But we want you to not keep that a secret. We'd love to, to encourage you in that commitment to walk with Jesus. So please share it with anyone you saw up on the stage, Pastor Kurt in the back, any of the leaders of the church that you saw. We'd love to pray for you and encourage you.